Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts, chapter 8, Acts 8. We've kind of taken a circuitous route through Acts. If you're visiting with us today, our normal fare here is to go through the Bible verse by verse, or books of the Bible, so we find ourselves in the middle of Acts. In this chapter, there's a story about a man named Simon. He was a magician, and he tried to basically buy into the Holy Spirit. And in the middle of this section, there's a passage in verses 14 through 17 where I took the liberty to kind of divert away from Simon, and we talked about filling of the Spirit, baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that message was called the Samaritan Pentecost. Uh, that's on our podcast if you want to give it a listen. So we're back to, back to our series called Simon Says, and we're looking at uh, verses 18 through 24 here in Acts 8. Now Simon was a man who, he was deceived, and he was deceiving others. And we looked at the question the last time we talked about Simon, about how is it that people can maybe be so vulnerable to deception within a church? And so as a matter of review, let's talk about what we talked about that first time, that many Christians are vulnerable because uh, they've drunk the cultural Kool-Aid of avoiding all certainty and truth claims in matters of faith. Now, this is a common thing in our society that basically if you claim to have certainty in matters about God or religion, that you're, you're arrogant, uh, you're a narrow bigot, because how can anybody know anything for certain about God? So th- this is a common notion. So as a result, many pulpits are, are filled with you know, nice stories. It provides warm feelings of approval for everyone, more than you know, declarative statements from the Word of God. So without an authoritative guide, uh, people are just left to their whims and opinions. So that, that, that's one issue. Second is that many Christians are vulnerable because they're fascinated by fame, money, and claims of supernatural signs, particularly when those, those signs replace a genuine walk with God. I mean, let's face it, inviting people to suffer in, in discipleship with Jesus, that's missing from a lot of faith experiences. I mean, the temptation then is to kind of package Christianity as just one of many other techniques to improve our lives, to to deal with specific problems, or even to use it as a, as a vehicle for success. You know, hey, you're going to live your best life now, meaning I can meld it with American capitalism and Christianity. You know, what a great package, right? And a lot of churches uh, do that as a way to kind of, you know, just leverage themselves. Well, when Christianity is viewed this way, I think that people are prone to believe anything that feeds our fleshly desires. And I think that makes us vulnerable because we, we don't value doctrine at that point. Uh, we're more wowed by the, the, the trappings and the regalia of, of religious uh, experiences. Thirdly, many Christians are vulnerable because they think that they've tried Christianity and they find it wanting. They find it lacking. They are ready to give up on it. Many people come to the conclusion that Christianity just doesn't work at all. Maybe an odd thing for a pastor to be talking about, but I've talked to myriads of people who feel this way, that Christianity just doesn't work, right? Another common refrain is, uh, church is boring, okay? You ever, ever heard that? Or, or you, 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 a person might be praying, you know, I, I've prayed for God to do this in my life, and it doesn't happen. 
prayed for God to heal, and it, it, it didn't happen. Uh, I asked for God to fix this issue to come through for me, and he didn't. Now, I'm not denying those experiences. What I'm, what I'm addressing is the interpretation of those experiences as meaning, therefore, that God is distant, God is gone, Christianity doesn't work. When we go into our Christian lives realizing that God is calling us to a life of discipleship, that has a way of, uh, uh, which may, may include suffering and joyful experiences, that has a way of adjusting our expectations, does it not? I mean, I realize that God is not my waiter, you know, just to give me what I'm ordering, right? And so since, you know, since church is a disappointment, uh, since people have been hurt by other Christians, since God didn't come through, then I guess the only conclusion we can make is that Christianity doesn't work. So when our expectations are focused like that, I think we're vulnerable to accept anything that comes along the pike to gain some excitement to, you know, promises to improve my lot. And, and even if they don't make sense, even if they're not objective, even if they're not biblical, I'll take those over my experience with a dead church. And I think that's the story of a lot of people. Uh, lastly, many Christians, I think, are vulnerable because they're unaware of the spiritual forces that work against them. We read this in 2 Corinthians 11, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of light. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. What that means is within our churches, Satan is seeking to plant people that will deceive. And when we are unaware that this takes place, that the enemy will seek to deceive us, I think we're far more susceptible to believing anything, especially if it's popular, uh, clever, you know, funny, charming. Uh, so ignoring these four factors, I think, makes us more vulnerable. We noticed last time when we were in this passage that Simon made a living out of marketing himself. Uh, he marketed himself as really hot stuff in the spiritual realm and, and doing magic. And our passage tells us that people were amazed by him. I mean, the, the guy was a hot thing in town. But then Philip comes to town, and Philip preaches the gospel, and there are miracles that occur as a result, and a light bulb goes off with Simon, and he plots to be on the inside of this supernatural movement, and he uses cash to try and get there. Let's all stand as we take a look at our passage in Acts 8. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So, Father, work in us today. Transform our hearts in a way that changes perspective, changes behavior. We give you the freedom to do that. We acknowledge we don't know it all. 
We acknowledge we don't have this Christianity thing down. We acknowledge that you are infinite and we are finite. We need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In his book, What Money Can't Buy, Michael Sandel states, there are some things money can't buy, but these days, not much. Almost everything is up for sale. And if you have enough funds, you can buy pretty much whatever you want. For instance, you can buy the right to jump to the head of the line at Universal Studios for an extra $149. Vacationers at Universal Studios can buy a special front-of-line pass that allows you to cut in front of all the rides, the shows, and the attractions. In some cities, you can have a prison cell upgrade for 90 bucks a night. In some cities, nonviolent offenders can pay for a clean, quiet jail cell without any non-paying prisoners to disturb them. Check this out. You can get your doctor's cell phone number. That will start at about $1,500 a year. A growing number of concierge doctors offer cell phone access and same-day appointments for patients willing to pay extra for that service that can cost as much as $25,000 a year. Now you hear this and you think, man, money can get you anything. But I know of at least one thing that money cannot buy. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Notice the reason that he wants the Holy Spirit. It wasn't, you know, there's no mention here about him wanting to be more effective in preaching the gospel, wanting to use, you know, the gifts of God, wanting to produce more spiritual fruit. No, it was basically so that he could impress others and lay hands on them so that they too could have this experience that these people were having. And he figured that he could offer to Peter and John some cash to kind of sweeten his chances to get in on the inside of this stuff. In fact, there's a, there's a term named after Simon called Simone. It means the act of buying and selling ecclesiastical offer, um, offices and pardons. He's now known for this. He's got a name that he's coined or that's been coined after him because he was corrupt. What a legacy. The fact is, whenever religion is used as a way to boost somebody's ego, and usually it's the leaders within a religious movement, uh, it becomes a commodity. It, it becomes corrupt. And it is, can be, an occupational hazard. And for a, a lot of men or women to stand in front of people, to talk, to have people ask you questions, you're thinking, yeah, you know what? I really am hot stuff. And it goes to a, a person's head. Um, and so you can see how easy people can get trapped in this kind of a thing. But I want you to notice something, hopefully that's obvious to us, and that is that you cannot buy 
the Holy Spirit. You cannot manipulate him to work in your life or in others. A human ingenuity will not thwart or coerce the work of God. The Holy Spirit is sovereignly given to people. And the purpose is to equip believers for fruitfulness and for obedience to the glory of God. I mean, we see, and this is certainly not exhaustive, but just to give you a little taste for the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, we see that he's active, for instance, in, in starting and keeping our salvation. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And then we read this in Ephesians. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Your performance is not the guarantee. God's promises and the seal of the Holy Spirit are your guarantee that God will keep your salvation and your inheritance. He's also active in in teaching and reminding us of the Word of God. We read this in John 14, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things, bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. We read this in 1 Corinthians 12, how he gives gifts to believers in a variety of ways, and he does this sovereignly. It says this, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So there's a great variety in how God will use even just one gift. You know, a teaching gift can be used in a variety of ways. Giving gift can be used in a variety of ways. Gift of faith can be used in a variety of ways, not just within church walls, but it produces a variety of fruits, a variety of, of, of effects. All of this sovereignly put together by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit works in each and every believer. He works from the inside to produce the fruit of obedience. Now, I think what is kind of fascinating to me, I mean, I've been a Christian since um, I've been 13. What is fascinating is how people gauge the activity of the Holy Spirit. And of course, we can't escape it. I mean, if you follow along with the, with the biblical narrative, what we see is that the Holy Spirit works alongside with the Word of God to energize and equip us to do the will of God. And if we throw in what the two greatest commandments are, which are what? To love what? Love the Lord your God and what else? To love others. Two greatest commandments, right? So everything about the Christian life in fact, everything about the law can be fit under those commandments. If, if I had to reduce, so tell me what the Christian life is about. Loving God, loving others. That's what it could be reduced to. You want to know what the Christian life is about? That's what it's about. Having a relationship with God, a relationship with others. Uh, Janet and I often talk to the, in, in our parenting, you know, you read a bazillion books about, you know, good parents and all that. And, and what are you trying to accomplish in parenthood? And we always boil it down to that. Okay, we want our kids to be able to love God, have a, a vital relationship with God, and we want them to be able to love others well, to, 
treat people with respect. If they do those two things, then, you know, that's okay. I don't care if they're a garbage collector. Uh, if they can do those two things, we will have succeeded. Everything about the Christian life could fit under those two commandments. So my, my thinking then is it would seem that the Holy Spirit would be involved in that. Jesus said in Matthew, teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Of these two commandments depend all the laws and the prophets. Okay? So we can assume that when the Holy Spirit is active in somebody's life, that it will be in accomplishing two great commandments. That that would be the premier activity of the Holy Spirit being involved in our life. To abide in the love of God and to love others. I mean, I like what Philippians says, that it's God who works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. In other words, the work of the Holy Spirit is working in us so that we can please God. And how do we please God? We love him and we love others. So we can, again, I'm going to restate it again. If the Holy Spirit is active in our life, it'll be to accomplish those two commandments. I like what 1 John 4 says. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides him and he in God. So the Spirit is given to you. You recognize that Jesus is who he says he is. And then, and then you... Work in this relationship with God. That's something the Spirit gives you. That's the work of the Spirit. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we've come to know and to believe the, the love of God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God. God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. The day of judgment. What does that mean? Well, what that means is we stand before God. What's he going to hold you accountable to? Did you love me and did you love people? That's what it just said. That's primarily how God is going to judge us, and that is primarily how the Holy Spirit is working in our life. So, if I'm not abiding in Christ, not loving God, not loving others, am I allowing the Spirit to control me? No. If you're not loving God, moving in relationship with God, if you're not moving in relationship with others, you're not filled with the Spirit. You're not led by the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is controlling you, you are always growing in your relationship with God and with others. When our flesh is controlling us, what are we doing? We are growing in our distance from God and creating more distance from others. That's the mark of the flesh, not of the Spirit of God. So if the essence of our lives and ministry is relationships, I mean, what are the things that we look to then to kind of evaluate that? Well, how about depth of relationships? How about, you know, humility in relationships to kind of lay down a person's faults and still relate to them? How about endurance in relationships? I think those would be clear markers. And yet, how do we typically measure the Spirit's activity in our life or in other people's lives 
or in the life of a church? Well, for a church, typically it will be how exciting or large are the programs? Uh, Does this ministry have entertainment value that titillates the senses? If it does, then that's cool because then God must be in it, right? I mean, is the ministry growing and thriving and people like it? Then God must be in it. My question is, where's love? How is love even in the equation? I would say love needs to be preeminent. Now I know, of course, every Christian's gonna say, Yeah, you know, yeah, we need to love. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Love, love, love. But the church is growing. We got dancing dogs on the stage. Look, God, using that. That's awesome. Look at that. That's cool. People are coming. What marks the Holy Spirit's activity? How do you measure the quality of relationships in your life and in the church? Are people moving in community or away from it? Are, are people pressing in to relationships, resolving hardships, or using that to create more distance? Do our relationships have staying power within our families and within the faith community? Now, I get it that there are some people that just don't want to have a relationship, you know, and, you know, you might have family members, uh, extended family, or friends where you've tried to love them and they don't want to have anything to do with you. I get that. You know, it's like what it says in uh, Thessalonians, that if at all possible, be at peace with all men, which implies that sometimes it's not possible. Some people don't want peace. <laughs> they don't want to reconcile. I, I understand that. But if we truly believe that the Holy Spirit is moving us in relationship with God and others, then how do we gauge our lives? I, I would suggest that how we gauge our lives has to align with those two greatest commandments. Now, this is hard. And the reason it's hard is because the proving ground, I think, for relationships is conflict. It's misunderstanding. I mean, it's easy to love when everybody likes us, when we're getting along with everybody, but when there's conflict, when there's misunderstanding, that will test more than anything whether you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And what we normally see as obstacles in relationships maybe becomes the real arena to reveal our true motives. And I think like Simon, we're going to be tempted to take shortcuts to compensate for a relational lack with God and others. I mean, Simon couldn't help himself from trying to get a little ego boost from hobnobbing with the apostles, and he was hoping that that would, and and using some cash to do it, that that would turn in then to him having greater power with others. You know, the fact is, I just think it's the way that we're constructed. The human heart is going to seek significance no matter what. It'll do it in a healthy way or an unhealthy way. In a healthy way, I think it's finding our identity in Christ, knowing that God loves me unconditionally. That becomes a springboard then for loving others unconditionally. That's the only way I know how to love people who are unlovely. 
at least on a continual basis. If we don't do that, then we're going to still seek significance, but it'll be through unhealthy ways. So our greatest challenge will be whether we can seek that significance in light of the two greatest commandments. So instead of, instead of humbling entering, entering into the mystery of, of loving relationships, the temptation is going to be to position ourselves and then evaluate others, I think, with a lesser means other than the two commandments. And when this takes place for a church, what happens in programs take on much greater significance than relationships. When this takes place for a marriage, then comfort precedes working through conflict. And when we fail to rely on the Holy Spirit in evaluating our spiritual temperature, what's going to happen is that we minimize relationships. And we make you know, spiritual estimations of ourselves and others through a very narrow lens or, or through legalism. You know, oh, you guys are homeschool. Mm. Or, you know, fill in the blank with about a hundred other things that could fill in. Oh, you guys drink. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, or how about this one? They aren't spirit-filled. Usually that's an indicator of some external manifestation is lacking. I've never heard spirit-filled be used in the context of loving relationships with the two greatest commandments. And yet that is the primary way that the Holy Spirit works in our lives. Why not talk about that in terms of being filled and used by the Holy Spirit? Or we, we, we'll take a kind of a secondary piece of doctrine and use it to evaluate. Well, these people don't believe that. And then we create our own little club, uh, you know, maybe a denominational affiliation or something to create, you know, some religious allegiance. That that's the sign of spiritual health. So I'm just trying to give you a taste of how I think some of this is done outside of the two greatest commandments. We're trying to evaluate the Spirit's activity. It's like you can't, if, if you're going to turn your back on the two greatest commandments, then all these other things are going to take on much greater significance. The, the allure of surface spiritual est, uh, estimations is that it justifies our distance relationally from God and others. See, see I can say, because I had this spiritual experience that I think is the sign of filling of the Holy Spirit, I could say, look how spiritual I am, even though maybe, you know, I, I, I treat my wife like crap. Or, or I'm, I'm, I'm relationally very distant with others in the body. I mean, what's up with that? You can't say that. There, there's something hypocritical there. The main way that the Holy Spirit works in our lives is moving us in relationship. The focus becomes in other people, other factors who fail to meet our expectations. And then it's, it's them. It's those people. The thing about realizing here with the two greatest commandments, the onus is on me. I'm responsible. Depth, humility, endurance, those become important. When motivated, motivated by love, our focus is much more about 
you know, positioning our heart for healthy relationships. What, what did, what did uh, Proverbs say? That above all else, guard your heart. That's not to say selfishly just care about yourself and nobody else. No. Position your heart so that it's healthy so that you can love others. I think, you know, we talk all the time about I got to have, you know, a, uh, I got to have boundaries. I got to protect my heart. And sometimes we take that to mean I can be selfish over here and not love who I need to be loving. But the purpose of it is that I'm going to have, I'm going to have boundaries. I'm going to feed my heart, protect my heart so that I can love, so that I can extend myself to others. That's the the intent of that passage in, in Proverbs. The fact is, Simon was not taking responsibility for the quality of his heart. He merely wanted an external trapping that he could manip- manipulate. And we're being very naive to think that this is not done today. It's done all the time. The way that we evaluate our own spiritual life that contend towards legalism, I think, as a result of this, not relationally, but, you know, something I'm doing or performing, we do it to evaluate our church, a marriage, our own spiritual lives. It's very sad when we, we basically are easily duped by counterfeit measures or measurements. I don't know how else I can say it, but you are not filled with the Spirit. You are not being led by the Spirit. You... You're not giving into any movement of the Spirit when you live in a consistent pattern of avoiding others, creating distance between people who've disappointed you, and you make a practice of criticizing others. Let me just see if I can extend it even a little bit more. You can speak in tongues all day long. And I'm not, again, I'm not a cessationist. I'm not saying that tongues is not for today. I'm not saying that, so don't hear it wrong. I'm just saying you can speak in tongues all day long. You can have your hands raised till the cows come home. You can have Christian music pumped through every room of your house. But you are not led, filled, or controlled by the Holy Spirit when you are continually creating distance between yourself and others and yourself and God. That's the flesh That is not the Spirit of God. How can a close relationship with God produce an attitude that refuses to deal with people in your life that maybe you've hurt or you've hurt them? And then you arrogantly position yourself as somebody who's spiritual. That's the hypocrisy of it all. Using false measures and trying to manage our spiritual life minus the two commandments That is similar to Simon. Now, here was Peter's take on Simon. Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You are neither part nor lot in this, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, And pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. One commentator paraphrased what 
uh, Peter was trying to say here? This was the paraphrase. And actually, if you look at the words that he used, this is pretty close. To hell with you and your money. To hell with you and your money. You thought you could buy us off and purchase the Holy Spirit? You are wicked. And that does not emanate from the Spirit. That emanates from someplace else. Wicked is a way of saying actions that are deliberate, uh, that, that, that Simon was headstrong going in the wrong direction. And then he's full of bitterness, a bondage to iniquity. Those are strong words. You know, I, I suppose we could be prone to think that Peter was being judgmental, but, I mean, the fruit was right there. Simon made his way known. His heart was out there in what he was saying and doing, right? I mean, using the name of God, trying to be friendly with the apostles, even offering them money. But it was evident of where his heart was, and Peter calls him out on it. I mean, he said he wanted the stuff of the Holy Spirit, but Peter says, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Sometimes this happens. I mean, I guess it'd be like somebody coming up to me and saying, hey, I'll give you 10 grand if you allow me to be an elder. I mean, what? I once had somebody hand me a credit card. I said, here, use this card for whatever you want. I'll pay for it. I said, what? Use this card. You can take it. You can do whatever you want with it. And I'll, it doesn't matter how much you put on it, and I'll pay for it. And I go, no. He goes, well, why wouldn't you take it? I go, because if I need to confront you, I want to be able to confront you without this getting in the way. Otherwise, you'd be buying me off. I can't. I don't think Peter was being judgmental. I think Peter was being wise to call this out. So what was the answer for Simon? How does he change this? It's the same answer for anyone else who uses false spiritual measures and tries to manipulate. And that's repentance. Repentance. He had to admit his sin. He had to seek forgiveness. Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. <laughs> well, listen, there he's just, he wants to avoid the consequences, but he's not really repenting. He's not changing his actions. It's not repentance. Pray to the Lord, if possible, that the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Well, when he says, if possible, Peter's not saying, hey, God won't forgive you if, re if you repent. I think what he's saying is, I'm not sure you're ever going to repent. Come clean, and forgiveness will be yours. I mean, he's calling for Simon to renounce his sin. I mean, in the present state, what he says is, Simon, you have no share in the gospel ministry you have no part in the movement of the Holy Spirit. And that is all what he was trying to do and manipulate and coerce. So again, he had, he had words. You know, he said God. He said Jesus. He said Holy Spirit. 
But Peter was discerning enough to know that he was dirty. He was corrupt. He was manipulative. The same message can be given to all who are within a church who have continually and willingly worked against the Holy Spirit. And maybe we just need more men or women who say, hey, I can't be bought. But all of us are vulnerable. I get that. But I will not be manipulated. And take it from one who's been manipulated. I don't blame the other people. I mean, they're responsible for their part. But I gave in. I, you know, being a pastor for 30 years, I can think of multiple times where I wish I would have responded differently. But my desire to please made me easy to manipulate. And instead of standing up to maybe somebody who, you know, would get upset, I just kowtowed. You know, you can hold a position. You can, you can talk a good game. You can say, you know, I went forward during an invitation. I signed the card, all that. But my dear friends, if there's no real fruit of the Holy Spirit's activity through the two premier commandments, uh, I would keep my mouth shut. The only thing I would do is open my mouth up if it meant repentance. Here's what 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. But do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Listen, if you're currently failing, repentance is the only way to pass. I don't give this verse to have us all start doubting our salvation. The point is, if there is no desire to grow in your relationship with God, if there's a constant refusal to make things right with other people and bitterness, that gall of bitterness is in your heart, man, you need to take a hard look because right now you're failing the test. It's not about perfection. It's about the direction of our hearts, God moving in us, and we respond more times than not positively to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Love God, love people. Let's pray.